As doctors of what I call proper healthcare, and certainly as chiropractors, our mission is big and bold. Our nation and the world requires leadership when confronting the pandemic of metabolic derangement, which leads to degenerative disease and poor health. Masses of people around the globe will never know what it feels like to have boundless energy, unlimited potential, and true health independence into their senior years. Join me in my quest to bring together the best practices to make you a leader in your community. My question to the entire profession is, if not now, when? If not us, who? Dr. Nate Bloomy, Dr. Stephen Janopoulos here with you today to talk things such as intermittent fasting, immune function, inflammation. What's this all about? So uh, welcome, Dr. G. This is our third week in a row we've gotten to do this. Uh, last week wasn't quite so smooth getting it live on Facebook. We had to go YouTube live, but everything went off without a hitch today. We should be up and running. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. And, and this is a regular thing now, right, uh, Dr. Nate? This is like our, this is our, our, our show. This is the Dr. Nate and Dr. G show. That's right. It's on. That's what we do. So uh, we've had, you know, the first week um, we talked about, what did we talk about week one? The first week we talked about the, the, the current events, right? We talked about uh, all the things going on as it relates to viruses and immune system and all of that. And then, of course, last week we got into female hormones and, and, and how lifestyle, diet, uh, and, and chiropractic care can play a role in, in understanding all of that. That's right. And it seems like every time that somebody had a question, it kind of came back to a similar answer, inflammation. And so we kind of teased this topic for today, intermittent fasting, as one of the keys to helping decrease overall body inflammation, improve our immune function. We're going to get into that today. Um, Dr. G, I've known you, as we've said, you know, over a dozen years. Uh, and over the last five to six years, one of the main things I've heard you talk about more so than anything is intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, as we like to refer to it, and the benefits it has overall globally on our bodies. So we're going to get into that today. Um, I'm going to let you kind of give a preface and a 10,000-foot view of this as we continue to watch for people in real time to ask questions. Um, and I know we had a question from last week. Uh, we had um, Kate asked, what uh, would inflammation affect our body's proper response to hormone regulation during or pre-menopause? So I know we'll get that answered. Uh, that answered as well, and it'll play into all of this. But uh, I really think that this will be one of those uh, interviews that we go back to and refer to going forward, because as we talk about other future health crises, this is this is kind of uh, the keystone to a lot of it. So uh, with that, tell us a little bit about how your uh, studies led to learn about intermittent fasting, your experiences, and what you're seeing as results. Okay, so uh, I make sure we get to that question because it's really important. It's going to tie into this. I just don't want to forget it. I can go off on tangents. But really where, where this comes from, we have to understand there's a premise that we have to work from. And that premise is there are certain things we do in our lives on a daily basis that are necessary for life that will move more levers of our health or levers of our physiology, right? So when we think about the human body, we're not, you know, a, uh, we don't have a blood pressure system. We don't have a um, kidney elimination system. We have all of these systems, multiple systems that work together and depend on each other and are influenced by each other. So when I say move a lot of levers, what I mean is there are certain things we do that can affect every system we have in our body. 
And the two things that I find that moves the most levers of health are sleep and fasting. More so than diet and exercise, which are two other things that, that move our levers of health. But when it comes to fasting, again, as opposed to eating, uh, you can get more done for our concerns in the year 2020 uh, with fasting than you would with eating. Whereas if we went back 10,000 years and looked at the problems those people had with their health, you could probably solve more problems with food <laughs> than you would with fasting. Okay. So that's kind of the, the overarching theme of, of where we're coming at this from. But humans are meant to feast and famine, and we benefit from both. So I first learned this in, and, and a lot of you who, who don't know me, uh, my, my background, as soon as I graduated from chiropractic college, I got into a three-year postgraduate neurology program. So the brain has been the focus of all of my interest for my entire career for 25 years. And around the year 2009, 2010, when I started to do more and more functional neurology work with athletes who suffered from concussion, I started to attract older athletes or athletes uh, who suffered concussion in the past. So for example, a lot of my patients were in their mid to late fifties and they played a lot of high school and college football or hockey or, or some other contact sport. And they felt like they were suffering from the effects of those things. And that's called post-concussion syndrome. And it's something that I really spent a lot of time on. And we did a lot of things chiropractically and neurologically to help them, but nothing help more than fasting. And it came from the idea of what we call autophagy, which is which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 for physiology. But autophagy is a principle that says there's a genetic um, switch you can turn on, which kind of takes out cellular garbage. Uh, if you think of a cell as kind of like a, an office in an office building, right? If your body is an office building, you have a lot of offices in that office building. We call them cells. And each cell produces work and that work generates waste. And that waste can be uh, proteins that are just not complete or proteins that are wearing out and old that need to be replaced. And autophagy is the process of taking out the garbage, the cellular garbage. When you take out, just imagine you're working in an office and it's just filled with garbage bags and it's actually to the point where it's getting in the way of the work that you're doing, it would be nice to just clean out the office so the office can function better. Well, your cells work the same way. If we can clean out the garbage from the cells, the cells will work better. And the word autophagy, if we were to just split it up, auto means self and phagy means to eat. So basically to eat oneself. So if you're, it, if you can turn that switch on, you can do dramatic things for people suffering from degenerative diseases. And that was most evident in the brain. So persistent post-concussion syndrome, as well as neurodegeneration that we see today with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So I know I'm going circular here, but I'm going I'm to come back. So we found the only way to turn that genetic switch on, and believe me, pharmaceutical companies are still looking to come up with some kind of drug to switch that on. But what we find is that fasting turns it on. So I started taking my athletes and telling them, hey, 
if you can drink water for seven days, that would be cool. Let's give it a shot. And a lot of them are type A personalities. You give them a challenge, they want to do it. And what we saw was genuinely remarkable. So this wasn't just seen by the, uh, in, in, in my circles, in the neurology circles, but this was coming from the, the concussion research that was coming out of uh, a lot of the universities around the country. So that was the principle we employed and we took it and we moved it not only from athletes suffering from brain injury, but we moved it to uh, regular people suffering from early cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, that type of a thing. And then we started to apply it to diabetes. We started to apply it to uh, autoimmune disease and such the science went for the last, for the basically the last 10 years. And, and that's where, where the idea comes from. Now, the next question you might have is, all right, well, why? Why fasting? What, what happens there? Um, and, and I can certainly go in that direction if you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. The question I might ask would be, we've done detoxes through our office in the past, whether purification programs or other types of detox. And none of the ones that we've done historically had any fasting as a part of them. You got up, you made healthy breakfast, took some supplements, and you pretty much ate all day and you could have whatever snacks that were allowed and things like that. How does that detox differ from the um, autophagy that occurs when we do fasting? Two things that can move the levers of health it, as it relates to food. There's eating and not eating. So the cleanse that you're talking about is taking the eating component and just making it super clean, non-toxic, and you can only benefit from that. It's, it's good. It's a good thing to do, and we all should do it. By adding time-restricted eating, so I said before that we took our athletes and told them to drink water for seven days. Uh, we're not telling anybody in this group to, to do that. And as a matter of fact, we found that we can mimic fasting in a lot of different ways. And we found also that you can actually incorporate fasting into your daily routine. So, so that's where, where the time-restricted eating comes from. If you were to take a 24-hour cycle of the day, and, and we know that every living thing, tissue, cell, plant, everything on the planet for four billion years, I think, um, that, that, that the planet has been, been around, every living thing has respond, basically has mechanisms to respond to a 24-hour cycle, uh, you know, the way the earth revolves around the sun. So those, uh, th those cycles are important. And if we were to just take that 24-hour cycle and uh, divide it by three, uh, we get three sections of eight. Uh, we typically say it's best to sleep for eight hours. So sleep and rest can be eight hours. So you're not eating there, you're fasting. And then maybe work and being productive, right? So if this was 10,000 years ago, maybe you'd be a hunter-gatherer and you'd be spending eight hours working on your food and your shelter. And then there's the other eight hours where you could be feeding yourself. So that's kind of how we got the time restriction in a 24-hour cycle to be eight hours. So you fast for 16 and you eat for eight. And during that time, we pay less attention to how much you're eating and more attention to what you're eating. Just like during the cleanse, you pay attention to what you're eating. Uh, so, so that's the basic difference. We're incorporating in our program, fasting and feeding. In the cleanse program, it's the feeding, making it super clean and better for you. And you'll always benefit from that but it doesn't really incorporate extending out the fasting and benefiting from that.
Um, so we, we, we titled this, you know, intermittent fasting along with immunity. How does, inter- how does fasting change our body's immune function? I mean, it's something that everybody's talking about right now. We should make sure we're sufficient vitamin D, vitamin C, getting those things. But how can intermittent fasting play a role when we're talking about immune function and our body fighting off bacteria, viruses, and everything else? Great question. So there's a lot of different, remember we said there's a lot of levers that that get pulled here. So one of the things that fasting will do is uh, what's going to happen is when you eat food, you signal to your body that you're being fed. Okay. And that feeding, uh, there's a hormone for that. We call it insulin. So it's, insulin is very important. For the last hundred years, we've known insulin is super important as far as how much you you release it. And if you release too much insulin, you can wind up with prediabetes or diabetes. Uh, and, and that can be released, that can happen when people have a, a bad diet. So type two diabetes is a huge problem. But now we're looking at insulin in the context, not only of releasing too much, let's just say your diet is impeccable and you're not going to get diabetes because you're super healthy. We look instead at how frequently throughout the day you release it. So for example, if I eat an almond, I'm going to release a little bit of insulin. If I eat a chocolate cake, I release a lot of insulin. But if I eat an almond multiple times a day, that insulin will then signal to my body that I'm being fed. And being fed means I don't have to, uh, I, I can relax. I don't have to rely on stored energy uh, to survive. Stored energy, always think fat. Okay, so insulin locks away fat. And even if you're not aesthetically fat, meaning you know you don't look fat, Uh, you might be carrying a lot of fat. You might be carrying 20, 25% body fat and, and, you know, might even look great. But fat is like a hormone that produces inflammatory cytokines. So it's part of this this, um, signaling system. So your fat doesn't just sit there. Your fat does things. It communicates with the rest of your body and it does so with adipokines or or cytokines that come from fat and cytokines are typically inflammatory okay so now because you're eating frequently throughout the day you lock away your fat you don't burn it as much and you have more of that uh, endocrine organ that fat organ to produce these inflammatory cytokines but also insulin itself is inflammatory to blood vessels, meaning that all the blood vessels around your body are actually going to be more inflammatory. That can cause other problems because if your blood vessels are inflamed, well, then cholesterol has a much better uh, affinity for the, for, for the wall of the blood vessel. It'll ac- actually stick to the wall. And now we start to get mechanisms where your body's trying to protect you against an insult and that is going to result in more inflammation. So it, it really becomes the, the uh, you're, you're bringing in so many different systems that will contribute to inflammation. Yeah. So great, great answer. I think that if people really review that and kind of realize and understand that uh, we talked about this in the first interview two weeks ago when we talked about how we maximize our body's um, health and immune function. We talked about the adipokines and the cytokine um, 
crash and all those things that, that people are saying, well, that's probably the most deadly portion of this coronavirus epidemic, that this is, this is um, you know, a real light toward, toward what we can be doing in our own life to help decrease that, that inflammatory response. Talk about eating a little, you know, an almond multiple times a day or even, you know, and how that would differ from just having a bite of chocolate cake and what that would do for insulin levels. I've seen you in the past do a, um, a graphic when I've seen you speak uh, of, the, of the gas or the fuel tanker, right? And I think that's a great um, visual that people could have. If you would, get into that a little bit, explain how our body and, and also how much, how much stored sugar do we have in our body? Um, how do we avoid our body making more of its own sugar? And then how many calories do we have stored in our body in fat and how that plays a role too? Okay, great. All right, now we're going down a different path. So the, the, uh, also the, the, pre the premise here is that the, the body has access to different fuels. And if we break down our body fat and use it for fuel, well, then we'll decrease our inflammation. And that fuel is a little bit different. That fuel can become something called ketone, which is a different kind of fuel from sugar. <clears throat> Most of us are, you know, we've been blessed enough to wake up every day to a refrigerator and a pantry full of food. So we're pretty much mostly dependent on the sugar model. And let's also remember that sugar is pro-inflammatory as well. Um, think, think of uh, stickiness, right? We, we mentioned before about the stickiness of the blood vessels for cholesterol. Just think, think of sugar as being this sticky molecule. If you spill a little sugar on your counter and then you put your arm on it, it feels sticky, right? So if you have excessive sugar in your system, that too will, will contribute to the, the inflammation. But <laughs> help me out here on your question because I, I went off on a little bit on the detour. Um, bring, bring, bring me back. Two different types of fuel we have in our body, whether we're going to burn sugar or fat, how many, how much sugar do we have in our body just on any given moment versus how many, how much fat and then the tanker example. Right, right. Okay. So, um, I, I used to use the tanker example. Now I, what I pretty much say is sugar is stored in your liver. Right. Uh, and all of us, whether we be a senior citizen, a, a young teenager, an athlete or uh, an office worker, we all can pretty much hold about 400 calories worth of sugar in our liver. So just imagine, I don't know, half of your lunch uh, can be stored as sugar in your liver. Once that fills up, it's not going to store anymore. Anything extra can be then packaged as triglyceride, which takes it out of the sugar realm and stores it away as fat. So, so with that being said, if you eat more than your liver can hold, you then have to store the excess. I always say that the, um, the amount, if, if we took all of your blood, Dr. Nate, and just poured it into a bucket, and let's just say that that's a five liter bucket. In that bucket, you have about a teaspoon of sugar in that entire bucket. And you and any professional athlete or young teenager would have that teaspoon of sugar. If you had two teaspoons of sugar in that bucket, you would be a full-blown diabetic. Now that's pretty dramatic. A teaspoon and a half, you might be pre-diabetic. That's how tightly regulated sugar is. Now we know there's more than a teaspoon of sugar in a chocolate cake, but we can eat a chocolate cake. You will use all of your hormones to efficiently push that sugar out of the blood where it's toxic, where it's inflammatory, where it's sticky, and we store it away. So that mechanism makes sure that, uh, and we, can, we, we can't store it in our liver, it only holds 400 calories. 
So that's how we get fatter, okay? Uh, or that's also how we can have more fat floating in our bloodstream. And we see that on blood work. With the, the tanker analogy, think about a, a, a big 18-wheeler uh, truck. And that 18-wheeler truck has a, uh, like, like it delivers gas. So it has a big gas tank to deliver to gas stations. But the engine of that truck is run on the little gas tank that sits on, on the side of the, of the uh, cabin. That little gas tank can only hold 300 gallons or, I mean, uh, 300 miles worth of uh, fuel. But if that engine could tap into the big tanker on the back, well, then it could go coast to coast seemingly forever before it ran out of gas. That's the way your body works. Your liver is the little gas tank that powers your engine for the most part. If you could somehow get the fuel from the big tank into the engine, well, then your body would sense that it's never running low on fuel. That's your body fat. So your body fat is the big tank. Your liver or your sugar that you can hold is the little tank. And what we want to do is say, is it possible to switch the fuel to get it to go from the big tank into the engine for energy. And that way, there's no reason to be hungry or pull over for fuel because it's just full all the time. The mechanism to do that is fasting because insulin prevents that fuel in the big tank from going into the engine. You depend on the little tank. As long as insulin is is there on a daily basis, hour per hour, as long as insulin is there, the engine will never pull fuel from the big tank. It'll only take it from the small tank. So every time it runs low, you get hungry and you got to fill up. Every time it runs low, you get hungry, you got to fill up. That could be breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks in between. But if you switch to the big tank, there's no reason to be hungry. You're never going to run low. You could probably go days and some people go weeks without eating and barely feel hungry. That's a remarkable thing to experience if you've never experienced it. And fasting can help you do that. And you hear people say this all the time. I did the time-restricted eating or the intermittent fasting. It was tough at first, but now I blow past the 16 hours. I go to 18 hours and I'm not even hungry. If you're doing it right, uh, I know when I do extended fasts of 18 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, or even longer, I'm never hungry. But if you give me one almond to eat, then you better watch out because I'll rip your arm off if I don't get something to eat. I get very, very hungry. If For most of you who don't do this, it's the opposite. For most of you, if you go six hours without eating, you're starving. For me, the longer I go, the less hungry I am. Actually, I don't get hungry until I actually start eating. That means I'm metabolically flexible. I can switch from sugar burning to fat burning and back to sugar burning with efficiency. Most people can't, not because they can't, but because they haven't. So once you kick this system into gear, well, then it just gets easy and it becomes a lifestyle. Yeah, great points there, and I want to I want to hit on a couple of those and make sure people understand this. So what what I heard you say was that because the, we eat with such high frequency, our body learns to depend on the small tanks, fuel tanks on that truck, and we never get switched to the ability to burn the fuel from the big tank or all the fat and adipose tissue in our body. The more often we eat, the more we're training our body that we don't need to tap into that. This is going to have enough for us. 
know, forever. But because of that, the insulin that's involved, these other things, that's where the inflammation comes from, is us becoming, losing our metabolic diversity, flexibility, and just learning that sugar is the way of our life. And you talk to people all the time and they say, yep, uh, you know, I crave sugar, I crave it, and that's it. Your body is craving, you know, just refills to those small tanks, our liver, so we can continue to burn that and not have to worry about the fact that we have all that, I mean, virtually endless energy supplies in the fat. So again, what I'm hearing you say is that getting our body to become metabolically flexible is the key, but it doesn't happen overnight. And we've talked in the past about this is a four or six month process, but it seems that what you've done over the last year or two is develop kind of a, a routine that helps push people through this process to become metabolically flexible in a shorter period of time. And I think that's a really high value. So in the last five or 10 minutes we've got here, let's look into that. We've established that, that the intermittent fasting plays a strong role in our body's improving immunity, that when we are relying strictly on sugar burning and, and utilizing the energy stored in our liver, we want to fill it more, but then that leads to, to more inflammation and all the problems that it creates. So it would seem like a really great idea if we can get that switch flipped, become metabolically flexible. How can we do that in a reasonable amount of time? Okay, so what we've done is we've, because look, we all can just force ourselves to go three days without eating and you'll, you'll immediately start producing ketones and people do this all the time. And sometimes people will try to trick their body and make it seem like they're fasting. So for example, for the most part, there are three kinds of food, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. And carbohydrates and protein are the two kinds of food that release insulin the most. Fat typically doesn't. And if you have a majority fat diet or an 80% fat diet, we call that the ketogenic diet, you, it, it can be considered fast mimicking because you're not releasing insulin. You're mimicking the fasting experience. And a lot of people do that. I like to take a combination of things. I like to do the, the actual fasting. And I do like to have not necessarily an 80% uh, fat diet, but I do like to increase the fat, moderate the protein. I don't want too much protein because it releases insulin. And again, our protein needs change as we get older. Uh, and then of course, lowering the carbohydrate content and limiting my carbohydrates to mostly high fiber vegetables, which also have a, a very low insulin effect as opposed to, let's say a healthy fruit, like an orange or an apple, which has a much higher uh, sugar effect than than vegetables do. So lowering the carbohydrates, coupling that with intermittent fasting, raising the fat, the quality fat. I actually tend to uh, avoid dairy. A lot of people doing the ketogenic uh, thing on, online, you'll see a lot of this. The way they get their fat to that high level is they eat a lot of dairy. Dairy can be very pro-inflammatory. I'm not a big fan of doing that. And then there are some supplements that I feel can be very helpful to both the immune system to regulate inflammation, but also we can artificially spike our ketones. Uh, there's a, a wonderful product. I'm in, I'm, uh, there's a third gen generation product. It's now called Fast Fuel. And it's something that I've been working on for the last five years where we add uh, different forms of ketogenic fuel into a drink that people would consume while they're fasting. And what this does is help to spike their, their levels of uh, ketones in their blood. Because ketones, and again, you'll make your own. If you were to just do a, a three-day fast, you'll make a whole bunch of your own, but you won't really use it. Um, you'll urinate most of it out. 
But over a period of time, let's say four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, by taking this supplement, you signal to your cells, hey, there's a new fuel in town. Let's ramp up all of the systems in the cell to use that fuel. A lot of people, they get frustrated because they will check their urine for ketone levels and they'll find very quickly, wow, I'm doing this right. Look how these urine strips change color and I now have more ketones. And then they get frustrated when a month or two months into the process, their urine strips actually don't change color and they think they're not in ketosis. Well, actually it's their body tricking them. Initially, the high ketone levels were being urinated out because they don't really have a system to use it. But as they became more efficient and they started using it, well, less of it was urinated out. And therefore, that's what you want. You want to use the ketones. So, so by supplementing ketones during the fasting phase, and, and again, fast fuel is a very unique product. We can talk about that. Uh, but also during the feasting phase or during the eating phase of your day, there are some supplements that I think are very important for immune function, like N-acetylcysteine. Uh, we have a special formulation of that that I, I feel is very important uh, with cofactors. Uh, vitamin D, as well as uh, another product we call Inflamifex, which really helps to um, normalize several of the different inflammation systems in the body. Got it. Great stuff. And as a point of clarity, I know I've had to ask you this question several times just to make sure I understand it myself. You talk about the ketones being the result of fat burning and also the signal to burn more fat. It's really kind of a two-phase two effect, if you will, that these ketones, as you said, say, hey, there's a new fuel in town. But then the more we burn fats, the more ketones we get. And so it really is kind of a self-perpetuating process once you are able to become metabolically flexible and get that as I say, switch to flip, it can really make a big difference. Now, when I have people go through this process, which we refer to as clinical keto, utilizing those supplements and products that you were just talking about uh, over a 30 to 30 day or six week time frame, um, we see some pretty amazing results in a really reasonable amount of time. And what I noticed is, is that after I became metabolically flexible, um, and you know, I'm a geek, so I got the little keto mojo finger prick. I'm checking my ketones when I'm fasting. I know where I am. But once I noticed my body being able to, um, you know, I'd go for a run and I'd see my, my insulin or my uh, glucose would be at 117. And I'd know my body was still burning sugar. I was still making more sugar so I could run. Then once I became metabolically flexible, I would notice that after a run, my sugar would still be 89, but I'd check my ketones and I'd be at 0.6 or a high enough number that let me know that my body was utilizing uh, ketones for fuel. That's goals, fat, that fat burning process. That being said, when we're really strict through that four or six week time frame and get the body to flip the switch, once that happens, I've noticed that even if I you know, have my annual golf trip with the guys and I go to Michigan and we have some beers and we eat pizza, sure, I'm out of ketosis that entire time. But but by Monday at noon, after I got back and, you know, um, you know, travel day Sunday, by Monday at noon, I was back in ketosis again. That's really the big goal for when we have people um, understanding how this process works is getting them that flexibility to be able, strict in the beginning, stick with it. But then the ability to have, you know, you don't have to live every moment of, uh, of every day that way going forward. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that, I think? 
Yeah, I, I would like to add that, uh, you know, sometimes in the first month, two months, even three months of a process like this, somebody who got who got started and they follow religiously everything that we tell them to do and they get the benefit from it and we see it in their blood work, there's still a caveat there. So a lot of people who are pre-diabetic and sometimes we, we can look at that, there are different ways to see if somebody's pre-diabetic, but one of them is to look at a marker commonly looked at for blood sugar called A1C. And if they come to me and they're 5.7, if they're in the pre-diabetic range, I know they're more insulin resistant than I am. So if I eat an almond and they eat an almond, the amount of insulin that we release is going to be different. Let's just say I release this much, they release this much. And that would also hold true if I ate a chocolate cake and they ate a chocolate cake. But that's also going to be true when I eat a healthy steak and when they eat a healthy steak or when I eat salmon and they eat salmon. It holds true with whatever food they have. And that bringing their insulin sensitivity down or up, I should say, bringing their insulin sensitivity up and their insulin resistance down, that can take some time. So let's just say they go through the process, they benefit, three months have passed past. All of their benefits are really just wonderful. But then they start to go back a little bit to the way things were. Well, then that can play tricks on them because if they still release a lot of insulin with their meal and their meals become a little less healthy than they were in the first three months, they could lose some of their gains. So for some people, it takes three months typically to get dramatic changes that you notice immediately and everything's great. But for the, to become long-term metabolically flexible, it might take six months. For some people, it's nine months. I've never seen somebody take more than a year, uh, even the most severe type 2 diabetics who are insulin resistant and morbidly obese. Within a year, it's remarkable what can happen. But let's just say for your, for your listeners, this isn't a short-term thing. This is something that if you do it and you like it, you're going to have to figure a way to keep it going long-term without sacrificing too much of what you enjoy in life. Yeah, you know, and, and my point in, in making my experience is that once I learn what I should be eating and fewer carbs and those types of things, you know, I mean, you know, my fruit and vegetable smoothie that I have for, you know, for a, a meal or a snack sometimes has gone to a much more of a vegetable with fewer fruits, knowing the insulin um, sensitivity being an issue. Those types of things. Once you learn some of those hacks, which we talk about through the, through the keto uh, process, once you learn some of those hacks, the, the the eating a healthy diet becomes easier. And the little things that you were sabotaging yourself with, once we eliminate those, then again, that snowball effect of things really, really moving forward can definitely be there. So before we jump off, I want to address that one question we had from the beginning of actually from last week about, um, um, you know, female hormone changes as we approach menopause and how inflammation plays a role in that. Address that for us and we'll wrap up. I know we're going to utilize this video going forward for a couple of different purposes. And I have a feeling we're going to have some questions as people watch this going forward that we might even do, uh, dedicate next week's interview to, uh, to maybe more of this process of uh, what goes on in the four to six weeks. Uh, so keep that in mind too, but let's, let's answer Kate's question from last week. Sure. Uh, so we as humans are genetically no different than we've ever been. So if we were to go back to the time in which we, we uh, benefited the most from our uh, ability to adapt to stress and challenges in our environment, the, what gave us inflammation was typically trauma. 
Okay. Now what gives us inflammation is our diet and, and, you know, our, our negative responses to bad relationships and emails and bills coming in the mail and all, all, all of these things can impact inflammation. So we've changed how we, how, how we get, uh, in how we receive inflammation. However, inflammation is inflammation, right? Whether it comes from, uh, the, the, the stress associated with a lion chasing you through the jungle, or if it comes from a, a nasty relationship you have with your boss. Either way, you're going to have this stress response. Now, when an animal has, when a human has a stress response due to being chased uh, by, by a lion in the jungle, you can imagine that putting any effort into sex hormones and reproduction is probably just not a good idea, right? You, you need safety first before you start relaxing your body enough to start, you know, to start having children. So sex hormones are dramatically impacted by stress uh, and inflammation is dramatically impacted by stress uh, and vice versa. Inflammation can impact your stress. So no one can make the, the um, you know, if you're getting exposed to the virus, you get exposed to the virus. If you get exposed to an animal chasing you in the jungle, you get exposed. But it's your response to it that matters. If your pre-existing state is very high on the inflammatory range, and then something like this puts you over the edge, now you can imagine your body over-responding to the stressful environment, and now it's causing your hormones to fluctuate. Uh, so that's, in principle, how it works. If we were to get into the minutiae, the detail about the relationship between insulin and cytokines and sex hormone production, et cetera, we can go into that kind of detail, but I think it's not necessary. Just the idea is insulin, I'm sorry, inflammation signals stress, stress signals inflammation back and forth. That inflammation puts you in a state of protection and defense. There's no reason to have normal production chronically of uh, sex hormones if you're in a state of protection and defense more than you're in a state of resting and digesting. Great point. I think you really nailed it. I, and admittedly, we really just scratched the surface on that topic, but I think that's a great conceptual way to help understand that. One of the tests that we do in our office for chiropractic exams is heart rate variability, which is what, what we're looking at there is the balance between your body, between fight or flight or defense and protection versus parasympathetic portion of your nervous system, which is growth, healing, and repair. You need both of those functioning every moment of every day, but we need them working in harmony. And what we find when we do this test, the majority of people, when they start care especially, are way overstuck in the fight or flight. And we'll talk about that specific topic in the future, I promise. But that ability to measure that gives us an idea of how quickly, number one, people are going to recover or heal from care, but also will indicate how quickly their body can expect to become uh, metabolically flexible. Because if we're stuck in, in sympathetic or fight or flight mode, our body's not willing to do anything other than burn that fuel we might need at any moment to get away from that line. So these are great points. And I've had a lot of fun doing this today. This is a topic that you and I talk about probably more than any other over the last several years. And I look forward to, to revisiting this in future, uh, future interviews. But it really is the keystone to so many of the pieces we talk about. Inflammation, how it is truly the, the most destructive you know, but necessary piece of, of human physiology. And so when we recognize that and that we do have some control over it, certainly, you know, it gives us the power to have a different experience. Anything you'd like to add before we jump off here? No, no. I mean, you know me, I, I, I could talk for hours. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say for the listeners, 
we are always going to say things on this program that is, uh, or in, in these conversations that kind of goes against what you thought to be true. And, and that's going to challenge your view of the world. And that's a good thing. And it's okay. And it doesn't mean we're right and you're wrong or anything like that. But it just means there might be a different way of thinking about these things. And you can trust that Dr. Nate and I have spent our careers living this, thinking about this, studying this, and applying it to our patients. So we have a lot of experience behind us. Uh, and a perfect example of, of that, I'll close with this. We all recognize how good fruits are for us, right? Eating fruit is good for you. We've always been told that there's no reason to not believe that. But I challenge you to tell me where on the planet Earth, out 15 degrees outside of the equator, which is where 85% of the planet lives, um, where does fruit grow more than 12, more than three months out of the year? And the answer is very few places, if any. And if you live in a place where fruit doesn't grow more than three months out of the year, you should ask yourself, should I be eating bananas in January? And again, it goes to the whole story about sugar, hormones responding to sugar, and some of the things that we're experiencing. So you're going to walk away from here saying, Dr. G just said bananas are bad for you. <laughs> well, it could be. Uh, so that's for you to decide. So you guys, as you know, as I've said before, Dr. G is my resident expert. If I've got health questions, he's uh, always the first person I turn to. He's actually got a new podcast out called Chronic Health. Uh, give it a listen. Look it up. Look up Dr. Stephen Janopoulos online. Ask, uh, ask Dr. G. There's a whole bunch of different platforms. And he's continually taking questions uh, from the public and helping people kind of um, un uh, piece this health puzzle together. Uh, and the new podcast, I'm excited to get uh, involved with as well, Chronic Health, where he's going to answer a lot of those questions and just continue to give you that, that up-to-date information. And sometimes, as he said, counterculture, just understand that that he's done the legwork to know how this works. And if you've got more questions about it, please feel free to ask us. We love more content for these. Uh, I think that's a good uh, potential title for one of our future interviews. You know, should, we, should I eat bananas in January? I think that's, that's uh, definitely plays uh, kind of a, play on, on what we think about health and times of the year and things like that. So once again, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, we look forward to talking more with you in the future. If you've got questions about clinical keto or chronic health or any of those things, um, shoot us a message, ask us. We'll be happy to share more info with you guys. Enjoy your day. Be well. Thank you, Dr. Nay. Have a great day. You too, bud. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of chiropractic, medicine, nursing, or any other professional healthcare service, including the giving of chiropractic or medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional chiropractic or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not regard or delay in obtaining chiropractic or medical advice from any chiropractic or medical condition they may have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.